So it's been lovely meeting with everybody in the groups. We've had a chance to, I've had a chance to see almost everybody. Um, But everybody's been seen by one of us. And at this point, even after a few days of sitting, it's so lovely to listen to people and how much people are touched by the practice and by being here at uh, Spirit Rock. And, you know, just the, the waves of gratitude that come, you know, sometimes tears of gratitude is for this opportunity to uh, have, have a space to get away, <laughs> really, for a little while, <laughs> you know, a space for, for ourself. And some people, you know, there's a number of responsibilities or commitments that they're attending to at home and don't often get a chance to be with themselves, oneself. And it's just so, so the gratitude just really flows. And, you know, and even those who don't have that kind of um, commitment that impinges on them outside, you know, just this chance really to, to be here and uh, not have to engage, not to be bothered by anyone or have to engage in any um, extraneous activities. So it's just so, so lovely to uh, receive people's gratitude for these teachings and being reminded really of how profound these, these teachings and these practices are and how, you know, just even after a couple of days, how much, the, how much impact there is already. So really appreciate uh, people sharing and um, meeting with us and, and being so open-hearted about your experiences. It's very gratifying for us. So the, um, the Buddhist teachings are generally uh, about awareness, you know, about this deepening into this quality of being aware, being awake, being connected, being present. You know, and the practices and the teachings really guide us towards this uh, capacity that we have to be present. And I call this retreat the heart of awareness. And the heart of awareness, for me, is when it's not just the awareness of knowing what's happening and being present and uh, connected, but there's a quality of loving-kindness that we bring to our experience. So we might say it's when awareness is infused with this kindness, with this loving-kindness. And as we know, that's not always the case. Right? It's not always that, it's almost that, that kindness or that, that, that loving response sometimes needs some nudging, it needs some cultivating, it needs some encouragement. And I, and I that, that part of our practice, that, the, the, this aspect of the practice where we really cultivate the heart, this kind of personal heart, the human heart, and bring that more fully into our experiences is really the heart of awareness. The, 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 when the awareness is imbued in our human experience, the personal experience, relational experience. You know, we, we feel our heart, we touch our heart. 
And as I was talking uh, before, you know, we actually feel that uh, area as a, a, an energy center. And maybe some of you have started to experience, you know, you can actually feel sensations and a kind of an opening or a warming or sometimes energy around the heart, the heart area. It's like this comes alive for us. And we feel more deeply in connection. So, so we, we teach and we practice this uh, metta, M-E-T-T-A, with one of the, the dormitories, it's metta, um, and compassion, which is, a, which is an, uh, another flavor of the loving kindness where we turn that, the heart's turn to more of the suffering aspect of our experience. So the heart opens in more of a compassionate response. So this, this metta or this, this loving kindness, which really is um, this capacity to, to be in deep friendship with ourselves. Kind of this friendliness where we, we're really friendly with what's occurring. We're not in resistance, we're not in rejection, we're not in pretense around it, but there's a, an allowing and openness and a friendliness toward what's occurring. It's like I can walk in friendship with myself and with others. We feel that, and many people have, have mentioned it, this more open-hearted connection. Sometimes, you know, just sitting, sitting by the river or looking at the turkeys or, you know, just this, from this place of friendliness, everything looks different. You know, we're, we have a whole different way of being. Uh, in our experience. One person said today, you know, that this, this practice seems to uh, allow him to have access to the kindness that's in his heart. You know, the kindness in our heart, the kindness is, we are that, we are this, this uh, good, we are this nature that is kind, that is good, but it gets covered over. Sometimes we don't have access to it. And so these practices help us find our way back, find our way home where we already can, where we already know this goodness and we know who, who we are in this true nature. So when these moments arrive, when we feel this openness or the gratitude flows, we feel the friendliness, we feel in contact with, of course we want to hold on to it <laughs> You know, I mean, that's also what arises is, how do I keep this? How do I, how do I keep my heart open? How do I keep these experiences? Because we like ourselves here. You know, this is where we feel most true to ourselves. We feel home. Oftentimes people say, I feel at home here. You know, relaxed, open. And, and we want to hold on because we know how easy it is to lose touch again. We know, that, we know that it's pretty likely that our hearts will close again. We're not necessarily going to stay in this kind of open-hearted, quiet, settled place. And even more so when, when we're home, and when we're settled and when we're rested, it's even more apparent to us how, how we get disconnected, how we get lost. It's almost like we can see it more clearly 
when we are in that state of connection. And we can look back in our memory and we can say, oh yeah, that's what it's like. You know, and, and I prefer this, I prefer this experience. And it's a very natural that we would, we would want that, we would long for those, though, these experiences to stay. Because we, when, we, when, we look into our, when we look into the memory and remember how it feels, it's painful. That place of disconnection, that place of fragmentation. We might, we might reflect on that, those, that place feeling quite empty or, or deficient or somehow we feel hollow like there's nothing really there or there's something wrong with me. Right? There's something feels like it's missing, something's wrong. Or um, we might even, might even think I'm flawed. You know, that, that way that we start to think about ourselves. And the more we identify with those feelings, it's almost like they intensify and it can go into almost a kind of dread. You know, somebody said today, like a dreaded doom. You know, like that's the future <laughs> in some way. You know, when those, when those memories start to get stronger, reinforced through more thinking about it. And it's like they become clouds, again, the clouds that cover over, right? A kind of a, a veil that covers over this, this heart and this, this place of, of goodness. In that place we can feel small, we can feel constrained, cut off, we feel separate again. And if we aren't able to bring this loving awareness, this uh, loving uh, uh, embrace to our experience, and then we can, if we follow those beliefs and those perceptions of ourselves, we become more constrained and it can go into judgment and resistance, and aversion, and, and doubt, and shame, you know, some of, and the hindrances that J.D. was talking about last night, that, that cloud, or that cover over, right? So this, this, sometimes we call these painful states, this, these painful mind, mind states, kind of an, an egocentric position or an egocentric view. It's, it's like we're really caught up in this sense of this is who I am, you know, this sense of self and a, almost an identification around that as this being who I am. And when we're in that, that that's, there's, we, we can call that an ego-centered or self-centered view, a self-centered position. It's a strong sense of self and without the capacity to be able to see that clearly, we're, we, from, that, from that location, we're not necessarily going to be making choices that are so healthy for us. You know, we don't, we don't necessarily have access to, the, to, our, our, to our wisdom, which, which comes through the awareness, which comes through the heart, comes through the connection and, and presence. So, so we, can, we can find ourselves quite caught in these states. And probably we all have memories from, our, from the past where we can remember being very, very caught. I certainly can, you know. It's 
especially before I came to this practice, came to these teachings. You know, when, when life was so, so difficult and confusing and I was so lost that I was heading for a nervous breakdown. You know, and I d- had no way out. The only, my, that's how I came to meditation. Because I needed, I needed help, I needed something. And so when I was asking, and this is in the 70s actually, and so, so when, the, when there wasn't really a lot around around meditation in those days, there was mostly transcendental meditation is what, and what most people were, were involved in then. And somebody said, do TM, try that. You know? So I did, and it was helpful. I could really feel through the, that's a concentration practice, and I could really feel that by concentrating my mind and, and having some capacity to stop the agitating and negative patterns of thought that I started to be able to drop into more connection with myself and something opened up, something freed up. And it happened pretty quickly. It happened, I would say, after two weeks, I looked in the mirror and I actually looked different to myself. So it was like, okay, I think I'll keep doing this, <laughs> right? It was like, yeah, I think I'm on the right track here. You know, and I did that for a couple of years, actually, very, very faithfully, very disciplined, until I met a teacher in this tradition. And then I, I started on this, the Buddhist path. So we all can reflect back and, and just know how difficult and how painful those states of mind can be where, where it almost feels like we go into a kind of trance. You know, a trance, and, and we just, we just like, can't see much of anything very clearly. We're just caught in that. And that can lead to acting out in uh, difficult, uh, difficult patterns of behavior um, through drugs or alcohol or sexual acting out or you know, doing, doing uh, different kinds of uh, aggressive behaviors or things that are, you know, not only uh, are, are hurtful to ourselves, but then start hurting others around us. It's kind of, we, we, we can fall into this, and, and, and I, I'm just describing something that is not unfamiliar to us, whether it's within our own lives or within our, our culture. This is what we see. This is what, what's happening. This is kind of the falling into this egoic, confused, um, often negative patterning of mind and not know a way out, not knowing that there's anything else. We're just kind of lost in that. We're swirling in that. And if we have the good fortune, if there is, a, uh, I might say, the, the grace, like I did, that somebody said, well, try this, and it happened to be something that was available, the meditation that I, I did. If there's some good fortune that comes along, and then there's like something that helps us begin to open the mind and open the heart again, it's a, like a crack in that, what feels so solid and, and, and so... Um, um, unbreakable and then something comes along some spiritual practices meditation there are lots of other things too and then something starts to crack and open up and it's ah oh maybe there is a way out right and that's that's incredible good fortune for anyone that that happens for and it's happened for all of you or you wouldn't be here right now you know, and I have people in my life, close people, loved ones, who that crack didn't happen for. I have one, one nephew, a 35-year-old nephew, who 
it did not open up for him and he, he, he died. He overdosed on heroin. So, and, and that was years of trying to cultivate and, and, and work with him and help him along and work with the recovery and, and he couldn't make it. Just couldn't make it. And, it's, it's, and it, so it's, it's not everybody. It's not everybody who, who has that great good fortune. So, and so we, we want to acknowledge that and, you know, to really celebrate this, what we have, this, this, this capacity to, to open and to see into the nature of this existence more clearly. So we see that it's possible to turn this around, you know, this egocentric position can be turned around into what I want to call this evening a dharma-centric position. Right? So that when the, when the ego starts to break up that, and open up and we see that there's more than just about me, it's not all just about me, that there are other people and other things and other, other um, uh, things that matter in this world, you know, we, we start to open and see a little bit differently. And I want to call that right now a dharmic-centric position. When the mind opens, when the heart begins to open, and I'll talk a little bit more about what I mean by that. But first I want to read this um, poem from Stephen Levine, one of our teachers in this uh, tradition. Because this is actually a poem that he wrote about this turning. And I, and I like this. Um, I've always liked this. It's called The Meditation Blues. He writes, Sometimes it breaks my heart to watch my mind. Cold self-interest insistent fear and judgment, whispered insults, vengeful fantasies, triumph and despair. A conditioned unfolding so impersonal we take it personally. Sometimes aghast at the casual cruelty of even minor fears and celebrations. Sometimes it breaks my heart to watch my mind. And sometimes it stays broken long enough to touch even this pain with love. Sometimes the mercy washes even Mrs. Macbeth's hands, turns tragedy to grace, and makes it all worthwhile. Sometimes it breaks my mind to watch my heart. Sometimes it breaks my mind to watch my heart. This is the turning, right? This is when it starts to turn, like, like the, the heart breaks up the mind. These difficult, these negative, these painful patterns of mind that coalesce into a sense of me, this identification with me and who I take myself to be, and then it starts to break up and go, wow, there's actually more going on here. And when we see the birds and we see the turkeys, we see the river, we see the water, we see other people, it's like, oh, have you been here all along? <laughs> I haven't really noticed you before because <laughs> I've been so occupied with myself. <laughs> I mean, it might be the person you live with that you say that to, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, you know, I have a, a, one of my colleagues who's so, so lovely when, when he's, 
when I see him, or I think he does this with most people, but when he sits down with somebody, the first thing he'll do is go, hello, <laughs> hello. Sort of like, <laughs> really like making that contact. Hi. <laughs> because sometimes we can sort of just just go over that, like not, not take that moment to go, I know you're there. Like, hi, right? I see you, connect with you. So this turning, I'm calling it turning towards the Dharma. But what is the Dharma? What is this Dharma, Dharma Dharmic-centric view that, that turns, turns the mind, right? turns the, the heart? Dharma simply means law, the law, or the way, the way things are, or nature, or the intelligent nature, that which is innate or inherent in all things. It's like the way things are. Like the, like the, 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 the laws of this universe or the laws of nature, the way everything operates and the intelligence, this inherent intelligence, the intelligence of the body. The body knows how to breathe and how to circulate and how to digest and how to regulate temperature. And I mean, this is an amazing piece of nature here. We are, we are nature. We're not any different than the nature that we see out there. But we forget that we are of the same nature. And this intelligent nature, this lawful nature that runs through all things, internally and externally, this is the Dharma. And, and as we, we feel into that intelligent nature of the law, or the way things are more and more, our eyes open into this new perception, this new way of seeing, new, new eyes, Dharma eyes, where we become uncluttered, there's less cluttered uh, with the tendencies towards self-interest. This kind of where it's all about me, and we don't have to look very far in our, in our world <laughs> to see examples of that, right? This all about me. I mean, we can actually even just turn it back here, right, to where we're sitting and go, okay, sometimes I'm right here. I, it's all about me. And then we know how we can feel how that shifts and that changes sometimes where we're really open in a generous way to what else is going on here. This is that turn. It's a turning. This is what the Buddha was teaching, what the Buddha's interested in for us, how to come out of this self-centered location where we perceive the world and self and other and what's in it for me as I navigate and function in this world. From this dharmic, dharma-centric position, the Buddha teaches three important um, perceptions that begin to happen. That when we start to wake up, to open up to these three perceptions, our experience completely transforms. And this is what we're doing here. 
And they're called the three characteristics of existence. We start to perceive, perceive the law or the nature of the way things are through these three particular perceptions. We see the characteristics of the way things are. And the first one in, the, in Sanskrit and Pali is called anicca, which means not permanent. A means not, and anicca means permanent. Not permanent. Anicca. Because from a position of the egocentric view, it seems like everything's fixed in place. I'm here, you're there, you know, it's kind of like the trees are out there, the buildings are here, the dining room's down there. <laughs> and and it, we're not really able to see that actually things aren't as fixed or as permanent as we imagine that they are. So as we start to look into our own experience, this is one of, the, one of the things we start to observe, is that even my own mind and my body and my own experiences and the senses are actually changing all the time. Things aren't so fixed. They're not so solid. I'm seeing and I'm hearing and I'm feeling and there's sensations and I'm breathing and I'm thinking and my thoughts are changing and I was thinking that and now I'm thinking that and now I'm not thinking anything. And now I have more connection to my, my body and there's a wider awareness and it's just, and then, and then somebody coughs and then my mind tightens and then I'm, I'm lost. <laughs> it's like moment to moment to moment, this constantly changing experience. And things happen quickly sometimes or sometimes maybe they change over a longer period of time, maybe a, a marriage or um, a, a, a loved one's lifespan or um, a, a favorite shirt that then gets a hole, on, hole in it and starts to disintegrate. You know, we have the, the morning and the night, the sun and the moon and the stars, and it's this constantly changing experience we see that everything is fleeting, everything is transient, and when we see that, then we see that actually nothing is so substantial. Nothing, when we look deeply, we see that things don't actually have a core substance. Where would that core be? That everything that is, that is born into this world passes away. Right? This is almost something that we kind of... Depending on who and where we are, we might resist that. Everything that's born, everything that's, that is, is, is given birth into this world will die, will pass away. This is a law. This is what we mean by dharma. It's a law. It's the nature of things. It's the way things are. And from this view... We, we can see that nothing can give us any lasting satisfaction. Right? There's not going to be any lasting gratification because it's going to leave us. When I was reflecting on this, this talk, I came across this, this uh, uh, piece of information that 
I wanted to remember, which was that the average, they, they, they've done some scientific, I don't know how they do these studies, but there was a scientific study that the average life of an emotion is 90 seconds. <laughs> so even like if, if you've got this wave of anger or jealousy or, or fear, or, or it's like waving. Emotions are waving, right? It's like waves on the ocean. And yet it seems like, well, you know, when, I, when I'm angry, I could go, wow, I'm really an angry person. You know, or if I'm sad, you know, wow, I'm a sad person. <laughs> you know? Or, you know, even grieving, you know, I'm, I'm grieving. But, but if we really look at our experience closely, which is what we do with our mindfulness, we see that it comes, yes, and it's here for a little while, but it also disappears and something else arises. And then we can be with that, moment to moment to moment. Everything is breaking up and changing. There's a, an, an image that, oh, when I was reading the Buddhist text, there's this one image that just kind of, when I think of Anicca, when I think of the um, impermanent nature of things, there's this one image the Buddha used in one of his discourses where it was an image of, the, of, of water drops dropping on a hot plate. And I just love that. You know, it's just like that. You know, you can see the water drops and then they drop and push. And maybe a moment of steam and then where's that gone? You know? It's kind of like that. Right? And yet we take... It seems like things are so solid. But when we really start to know this and see this, and this is one of the profound uh, aspects of this meditation, is we can start to see this changing nature. I mean, where did, where did lunch go? Where did breakfast go? Where did that really good experience you had <laughs> at 10.15 go, you know? It's like... Where did your house go that you were at last week? <laughs> Maybe it'll be there when you go back. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> or your car. <laughs> so far, it looks like all the cars are still in the parking lot. But, you know, we just we take all this for granted. So we just start to feel into that. And as we, we sense into how we actually hold on to these things, you know, the self-possession, because it gives me something, we think, well, is it really going to give me this lasting gratification? Because we see that actually, because everything's changing, there's an inherent or a basic unsatisfactoriness in it. It's like it, it's not really that satisfying. How can we gain, we can maybe get satisfaction for a, 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 a couple moments or maybe, you know, with ice cream, ice cream cones, you know, they're really good, but then they're gone. <laughs> you got a little, little gratification, but you can't hold on to it. And so that, there's that kind of dissatisfaction inherent in the not being able to hold on to anything. And in these teachings, that, that unsatisfactory nature or that unsatisfying aspect is called dukkha. 
You've heard the word dukkha? Yeah. Dukkha? It's a great word. It's another one of those good Buddhist saints, uh, Pali Sanskrit, sometimes Pali and Sanskrit are the same, but dukkha, right? To really understand this nature of dukkha. Because it's like, because when we're wanting, that kind of wanting that, that because we want to be gratified, we want the satisfaction, we're looking for the happiness, we're, we're looking for that sweetness, and then I can't quite get it. Right? It just, maybe, maybe it's there for a little bit, but then it slips through our fingers again. In fact, there, um, there are eight kinds of dukkha. The first four are the physical and mental dukkhas, called birth. This is where it all starts. Being born. <laughs> born into <laughs> what we call samsara, this kind of wheel of birth and death and birth and death. Born into it. Right? Birth, aging, sickness, death. Four kinds of dukkha, right? Unsatisfactory. (laughs) And then the next three are the dukkha of encountering that which is unpleasant. Having contact with something that's unpleasant, an unpleasant sound or a sight or a, a word or behavior or something that's unpleasant. Or, the, 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 the sixth one is a separation from that which is pleasant, losing that which is pleasant, losing that which we love, the dukkha of that, that loss. Or, the, the next one, the seventh one, not getting what you want, which is one we really can, we really know the dukkha of that, the dissatisfaction of that, we're not getting what we want. The I, the me, the, the sense of self, that egocentric kind of, I want this, and demanding it, and craving it, and expecting it, and throwing temper tantrums about it, and crying about it, wallowing about it. Dukkha. <laughs> Dukkha. And the last one is called general misery. <laughs> It's the all-pervading dukkha, <laughs> right? And again, this is the all-pervading dukkha because it's the basic un- unsatisfactory that is unsatisfactoriness that is pervading all existence, all forms of life, because all forms of life are changing and impermanent, and we cannot hold on to anything. This is the dharma. This is the law. <laughs> this is the way things are. Right? So we, when, when, our, when our position, our view, our viewing platform, sometimes I call it, when, when that starts to turn, when that starts to shift, we see, we perceive the nature of things differently. Ah, oh, things are changing. I can't hold on. And so then when I try to hold on and I get that, that burn from holding on too tightly or rope burn, it's like rope burn, I'm, I'm holding on to a rope and the rope is slipping out of my fingers and I'm still holding on to it. It's like, ah, 
dukkha. I'm holding on. I have to let go. Right? This is what this is the turn, the insight, the insight into the nature of this reality, the nature of this existence. And this this all-pervasive dukkha, this kind of all-pervasive misery in a way, it's like it's it's misery because it's a sense that things will never measure up. They'll never measure up to our expectations, or they'll they'll never measure up to our standards, the the egoic standards of what I think should be happening or what's possible for me. Right? It just it won't it won't happen. So I'm just here to tell you (laughs) to maybe save you from a little bit of pain and suffering. (laughs) You're never gonna get really gonna get what you want. And even if you do, because sometimes it's like, hey, I got what I wanted, it changes. Right? It's like, what happened? Somebody close to me, um, just a the day, the, day, the day I arrived here, somebody very close to me um, called and said her uh, husband had a, a minor heart attack and they went to the hospital at 2 o'clock in the morning. And um, she was calling from the hospital and he's fine. They did the, did the surgery and she had a severe, severe back pain. Like one of the most chronic uh, it comes and goes, you know, but this terrible back pain while her husband was having the, the in the hospital with the heart attack, and uh, it was, and they have a pretty easy and kind of mellow, good life, and then, bam, just two o'clock in the morning, it's like we got to go to the hospital, right? And then her back, and the taking, you know, being at the hospital for thirty-six hours, and you know, just like that, things change. This aging, right? They're in their 60s. Right? We know about the aging, the, the, the dukkha of aging, right? Disruption. We don't know. We don't know. Everything can just turn on a dime, right? We may not get what we, what we want. This is from the, the third Zen patriarch um, in, in China. I usually read this first passage on, on a retreat, probably every retreat, just because I, I, I like it so much and it, it's so telling. The third Zen patriarch, this, apparently this, this particular master patriarch, only, there's only maybe a couple of pages of, this, of his teachings ever written down but they were preserved. And this one, the first part of this teaching is, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. (laughs) (laughs) And then it's translated as, when love and hate are both absent, but what it really means is the the attachment, the attached love. When attached love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. That's great. Make the smallest distinction. 
and heaven and earth will be set infinitely apart. I separate. I like this. I don't like that. Heaven and earth separate. It's really, you know, so we start to, we start to get a sense of where this dukkha, where this unsatisfactoriness is arising from. Mm-hmm. I think one of the, the greatest, the, this teaching that I'm giving, this, this aspect of the teaching I'm giving is, has, has been such an amazing gift to me because I, I really see now very deeply that, that dukkha, this unsatisfactory uh, nature, which is often translated as suffering, but sometimes the suffering word may fe- feel too strong, but this unsatisfactory kind of, kind of touches it a little bit more for me. You know, that this, this, uns- this dukkha will always be an intrinsic part of our existence because things are impermanent. And because we can't hold on, we can't get what we want. Well, well it's, it's an inherent part of our human existence is this kind of restless, kind of agitated, kind of, you know, unsatisfied, like not knowing where to turn or how to do it or feeling out of control or the vulnerability that arises in that. That's, that's just, that's, that's our nature, part of our human nature. Because everything's falling apart. Everything's falling apart. You know, some people who are very deep in the Dharma, you know, think that, you know, even the earth has its own karmic evolution. This too, perhaps, is just falling apart. You know, it's falling apart. I mean, we'll, of course, do everything we possibly can to save ourselves. But, you know, there's only so much we can do. Things are out of our control. But before I came into the Dharma, I, and, and I had all this dukkha, all this, this pain and suffering, deep suffering in my life, I thought it was my own fault. I took it very personally. You know, I really believed that I was doing something wrong and I needed to figure out what I was doing wrong so that I could do it right and then I could make everything okay. Then I'd be happy again, right? So if I could just, you know, read enough books or talk to enough people or do enough self-improvement work or, you know, something that, that I'll get it right and I'll land in that sweet spot, you know? And I was just caught in this kind of this cycle of, of striving and failing, not, not meeting up to what my expectations were, right? And striving and then failing and striving and failing over and over. And I couldn't get it right. I thought it was me. Like it was my fault that I couldn't get it right, you know? And I, was ex- I feel exhausted and humiliated and frustrated, you know? And then that cycle, just that cycle continuing... And then from, this, from that position of not seeing things clearly, it seemed like some people had it figured out. 
right? Some people, you know, if they, if they had enough money and they, they had enough beautiful things around them and they build their castle big enough and then they built the walls around their castle big enough and, you know, they were really protected from dukkha, <laughs> protected from pain, and then, then they, they had it figured out, right? And so from that view, then I'm going to try to do the same thing. You know, well, how am I going to get enough money and have beautiful things around me and get the right relationship? And, you know, it's that, that's the, that's the mindset. If we build the wall tall enough and strong enough, we can keep it all out. Right? It's, it's, it's confused. (laughs) It's not seeing things very clearly, right? where the suffering, where the dukkha is actually arising from. I was, um, I was here teaching this same retreat, um, five-day five day parallel retreat, in October 2017, a year and a half ago, when the Santa Rosa, California fires were happening. That's, that's only one hour north from here. And uh, was anybody on that retreat with me? You, you were, right, Michelle, you were, yeah. And, um, and the whole time we were here, this valley was filled with smoke, thick smoke. All of it was coming down south um, from the fires, the big, big fires, as you know. And uh, we were all wearing masks, you know, to try, to try to keep ourselves from breathing in all that toxic air. And there was one woman who had been a student of mine for a while, and she had made an effort to come here. She lives in Mexico, so she got here for this retreat, and this has always been her refuge. She said, this, is, this spirit rock is my sanctuary. Spirit rock is my refuge. And I'll never forget her words when she said, it's no longer my refuge. Because it changes. <laughs> and it was really, really hard to be here. And I was teaching about um, compassion and equanimity and how to find some balance and in the middle of difficult conditions. And we, were, we had a couple people on the retreat who actually had, uh, one woman had an elderly mother who lived up in Santa Rosa in an assisted living, and they were trying to figure out how they were going to evacuate the, the, the people in the facility. And I kept checking in with her, are, are you sure you want to be here? You know, are you okay? And she said, no, I'm checking in. They've got it handled over there. Everything's good, you know. And I think for me, um, as, the, as the person who was holding the retreat, I live here also. I just live over the hill. I'm, I'm familiar with this area. Um, I didn't know. The conditions were so bad in terms of the drought and the, the dryness that for fire risk that whether we'd see a spark of fire right on the hill and that fire would come right down the hill and wipe this out, which was very probable at, at that time, those conditions. And so sitting with that, knowing what was going on over there, you know, reading the reports of the, the, you know, like the entire neighborhood, you know, being, being burned out and m- many people died and, you know, just sitting with that, the dukkha, you know, how, to, how to hold that 
And I think, you know, it's only from the Dharma perspective, only from understanding the nature of things, can we bring some kind of understanding, some kind of meaning to how things happen. There's um, a chant that in Buddhist, in the Buddha, Buddhists do at the time of loss or the time of, of death, the Anicca chant. And the words are in Pali, Anicca Vata Sankara Upadawa Idamino Upajituva Nirushante Te sa vipasamo sukho. And it means all conditioned things are impermanent. They arise and pass away. Deeply understanding this brings the greatest happiness. Deeply understanding this brings the greatest happiness. I read this... Um, after the fires, there, there in our local paper, there was this uh, article about this neighborhood that got devastated from the wildfire. And I just want to read these couple of paragraphs because I was so moved by them. It said, in a backyard without fences in a neighborhood without houses, Mike Hibbert stained his deck's railing, hoping to preserve the sanded old-growth redwood from in, impending rain. So this is after his, you know, he's had the one couple of houses standing and he's, he's kind of, um, you know, staining his deck <laughs> to preserve the wood. He said, from time to time, Tuesday, he looked beyond a, a, a red toddler swing at, a bur- at the burned out bulks, hulks of the Volkswagen bus, an SUV and a jet ski whose trailer tires somehow hadn't melted. In the background were chimney stacks, the only standing remains of a hundred homes ruined within a few blocks of, the, of his coffee park house. Hibbard, um, a 69-year-old grandfather of five, said to his wife, Leslie, uh, said, said that his wife, Leslie, would like him to build a new fence to hide what happened to, the, to, to, hide what happened to their neighborhood. And he said to her, but there's no, fence tall, there's no fence tall enough to do that. And I just, that same kind of, that, that wisdom that knows you can't, even if we built a fence, it's not going to keep it out. You mean we're going to forget that there's a hundred homes that are burned out on the other side of the fence because, you know, we've got our fence? You know, that, that really, just really taking in deeply the truth of this dukkha. So that brings us to the third characteristic. So the first one is anicca, all things are impermanent. The second one is dukkha, the inherent dissatisfactoriness. The third is what's called anatta, and it means self Selflessness. Selflessness. It means that things are not so personal. Even though we take things so personally, this happened to me, 
You know, I lost my house. You know, it's mine. It's not so personal. And as we feel into that, we can sense that there's something else going on here that is, that is much bigger than my small sense of self. And I realized, I remembered that the first time I had a real understanding of this is actually when I first started coming to these retreats. And I sat in the small groups, the small group meetings, and I started to hear people's stories. And before I had done this practice, I hadn't really, we, we weren't talking, you know, we wouldn't talk about our suffering <laughs> when people weren't necessarily talking about real personal things. You know, this is the early 80s, you know, but we came to these small groups and people started revealing what was going on, as they do, as we do here. And, and I was just hearing all this pain and suffering that was happening for people in their lives. And, and I realized that I wasn't alone. It wasn't my fault. It wasn't that there was something wrong with me. I, I, it wasn't just about me. But it was actually part of our human condition. And that we're in this together. Kind of, this is our, 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 our humanity that we are experiencing. And I was able to, to let go just a little bit more, to open up a little bit more and not just be so uh, caught up in my own pain, my own suffering. And my heart started to soften and my, my, my mind started to open and I could feel a sense of some solidarity. It's like, oh, right. We're, we're in this together. And that just kept happening. And then over the years, and just being involved in this work, and talking to people, and being with people, it's like, and opening up to the, now the, the issues, some of the deeper issues going on in our country around the ra- systemic racism, and discrimination, and oppression, and, and, and white privilege, and um, all the ways that um, I'm accountable, and, and we're all accountable in some way. Just keep opening, and opening, and opening that we're all in this together. It's not just about me. It's not what I've done wrong. It's not that I'm bad. I'm not flawed. But how can we, how can we open to each other and help each other? So we can begin to feel as we reflect on this, these, these, uh, these per- perceptions, these uh, ways, the dar- the, seeing the Dharma through these Dharma eyes, is things become a little less personal, a little more, more impersonal. And then maybe f- we can feel that we're a small part of a larger body, a larger whole, right? Or, or maybe one cell, like I'm one cell in a large body, a large universe that makes up this whole thing that's happening here rather than I'm the center of the universe and everything circulating around me. It's like, no, there's something else going on here. And there's an intelligence. There's an intelligence at play that my small little mind can't even begin to understand or begin to imagine. 
And as I allow myself to feel that and drop into that, I start to touch the mystery. The mystery because I can't comprehend it. It's too big. It's too vast. It's too profound for this small brain. And then I can let go a little bit more. My heart softens a little bit more. And then I can feel myself being a bit more sensitive, a bit more respectful, a bit more caring. I just that, that, that expansion, that openness that allows me to start touching others. And this drops us into a kind of place of where there's some, some ground, where there's some stability, where it gives me a little bit more capacity to stand in the middle of these difficult conditions, of these challenging conditions, without being thrown off center so much, because I can return back in to my being in wisdom and awareness and love. Feel more centered, feel more balanced. And this is upeka. This is equanimity. This is the path and the goal of this practice. This equanimity of knowing how and where to stand in the middle of this changing, uncontrollable, seemingly sometimes chaotic existence. And this arises from insight. It arises from insight into the way things are, into the Dharma. Anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, selflessness. Only then can my human heart meet the immensity of what I am confronted with. Only then. This is how these great masters meet meet these challenging circumstances. So this is our practice. This is what we're doing here. Having new eyes, <laughs> taking the lens off, taking those glasses off and having, seeing through new eyes in a new way, new perspective. And then see, then find out what happens. Find out how we meet the world, how we function in our lives, how we uh, can be in a different kind of relationship with ourselves and others. the heart, 
of awareness. So I'll end with this poem that was written by this um, Tibetan uh, master, uh, Chokinima Rinpoche. He says, when watching the magical display of this world as it seems to be, spontaneously an overwhelming despair and, p- and pity well up in me. When watching its nature of innate simplicity as it really is, I can't help but feel wonder and break out in laughter. When watching the one who feels pity and the one who is laughing both disappear and cannot be found. Now what do I do? Let's sit here for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.